harangued the dangly antlers and the hangman's banister, you sordid decklins. Get bent on the harbour master's hairdryer and sack Leitrim with a rude ballad about tits in your heart. Don't stop until your swords are drunk with the blood of your countrymen. That was a short poem submitted by Charlie Simpson from Busted and later Fight Star fame. He sent that one via carrier pigeon from the highest peak in Dartmoor where he's holed up with an antique rifle and a 10 month supply of Tesco value baked beans uh, because he's very very worried about a no deal Brexit and he has said that he intends to shoot first and ask questions later and he's also got a pocket full of pocket full of barley that he's going to grind down with his teeth and make his own sourdough bread using yeast from his eyebrows which he intends to sell by a lake and he'll be exchanging them for electrical products because Charlie is operating under a thesis that in a no deal Brexit there will be no electricity so he wants to have a monopoly on electrical products such as toasters or blenders and what he will do is wear several nylon jumpers and move around very briskly and generate an an electrical current that will come out through his teeth and then he'll be able to charge toasters and razors with his teeth using a self-generated electrical current. So best of luck with that, Charlie Simpson from Busted and later Fight Star fame. I hope that works out for you, sir. So, welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. Uh, how are you getting on? I hope you're well. I hope you're well. Um, I had a full-on weekend. I had three fucking magnificent live podcasts that I can't wait to share with you. They were really cracking. And the first night, a Friday, I was in Nace. I had Colm O'Gorman, who is the head of, of Amnesty Ireland... Colin was fantastic it was an emotional funny informative fucking night it, it was it was someone Colin is someone who was 100% congruent with his uh, emotions so when Colin feels something and then when he speaks the emotion just tra- travels out via the words an incredible sincerity that was fucking fantastic. Saturday night, Vicar Street, we had um, Junior Brother, Quiva from Wyvern Lingo, and Keen Kavanagh from Soft Boy Records. And we just, had, that was a fucking mad night. That was great. Great energy in the room. We spoke about what it's like being an, an Irish musician, especially for them being young Irish musicians who were only just on the scene. Um, Junior Brother did a song. It was a fantastic night. Then Sunday night in Vicar Street, I had... Brian Warfield, lead singer and songwriter of the Wolf Tones, the Irish rebel rebel band. Another fantastic night, but it was bizarre. It was brilliant. Brian Warfield, turns out, is is a bit of a character. And he was just fleeting from different stories. One minute, he's sound checking up in Derry, and the IRA and the British Army are having a having a shootout while he's trying to sound check. Then he's in Tala with Luke Kelly arguing about communism and Art Garfunkel is getting refused 
into a fucking lock-in in Tala. And then he performed like uh, this really intense shamanistic spell or ritual on the entire audience where he tried to banish the audience of, of colic which is an affliction that only affects newborn children as far as I know an insane night highly entertaining three fucking great live podcasts I'll, I'm going to listen to them back and see what actually translates as a good podcast to listen to but energy wise they were fucking crack and everyone everyone enjoyed it and I enjoyed it I loved it so just a very quick mention of what's coming up Toronto and Vancouver in July the Blind Boy Live podcasts they went on sale last Friday as predicted they sold out in under an hour all those tickets are gone thank you you Canadian cunts thank you Canada for buying up those tickets Um, I'll try and do a couple of other dates if I can if the space is there if not I'll be back to Canada at another time alright Um. Next live podcast this Friday we've got Whitla Hall, which is the twelfth, I believe, twelfth of April. Whitla Hall in Belfast, almost sold out. Thinks about fifty tickets left. Then we have twenty seventh of April, Cork, the Opera House, about a hundred tickets left for that. And then a new gig uh, that's only just announced, a Mullingar. Yes, Mullingar Art Centre. And the 5th of May. Come along to that. Oh and fucking Letterkenny. On the 3rd of May. How the fuck am I going to get up to Letterkenny? Letterkenny on the 3rd of May. We've got a live podcast. That's up in Donegal. Fuck it. Don- Donegal is a... F- that's a fair bit out of the way. That is... I'll never forget. Years ago. We were doing a Rubber Bandits gig. In Letterkenny. And... Whatever happened, the lad that was driving us, our tour manager, right? It would have been about 2010, maybe. And he'd just gotten a GPS thing in his car. A parrot, I believe they were called. Like, 2010, this was before... Like, not many people really had iPhones or smartphones, really, in 2010. They were kind of a novelty. Like, this idea now that, like, you've got a fucking map. You've got Google Maps, and this can get you places... That wasn't a thing in 2010. So our tour manager had this shit parrot GPS. And he decides to put the GPS coordinates for, I think it was Letterkenny, into the fucking thing. So we go from Limerick to Letterkenny. Anyway, whatever happened, the GPS thing was of the opinion that we were elderly Yanks who wanted the scenic route. So it, I think it took us nine hours to drive to Donegal. It took us nine fucking hours because it took us up these mountains. And at one point, this is how insane this was. This this left me actually with a a kind of a mild trauma about doing fucking gigs. So this stupid parrot GPS who that thought we were elderly Yanks, elderly Irish Americans, took us up this bog mountain in Donegal. And at one at one point. We got so high up the mountain that one, one of our dancers fainted. <laughs> and nine hours to get to Donegal. So hopefully, for fuck's sake, on the 3rd of May or whatever the fuck it is I'm doing it, I can have a, a fairly simple, easy trip to Letterkenny that doesn't take nine hours. Please, for fuck's sake, 
It's easier getting to Toronto than it is to get to Letterkenny. But I'm going to do it for you. Because I'd say there's some queer fuckers up in Letterkenny. There's some interesting people, some interesting guests. It's just, uh, it's a mad part of Ireland, you know, and quite beautiful too. And that's in the Mount Errigal Hotel. I might just get the fucking hotel. You can get like a bus to Sligo, and then Sligo goes up to Letterkenny, doesn't it? But even fucking Sligo's no joke as well. Bus from Sligo to Limerick. You can't get a train. If you tr- if, if you try and go, this is how mad public transport is in Limerick. Or sorry, in Ireland. If I was to get a train from Limerick to Sligo, it will only go Limerick fully diagonally up to Dublin and then Dublin to Sligo. It, it will do a lozenge shape tra- travelling fucking east. The most hilariously irrational journey that this country could ever have produced. And it's probably De Valera's fault. I don't know, but it probably is. And then a bus to Sligo, up to Galway. You have to fart around in Galway for about an hour doing fuck all. And then Galway to Sligo, and then up to Donegal. Public transport on the west coast of Ireland, lads. It's gruelling. It's fucking gruelling. It's easier to get to New York. And I, I try, when I do gigs... I do try and use buses and trains when I can. Because. Just because. Look. It, it, it's. I believe in supporting public transport. I want to support bus air and, and air and road air. And because they're state owned businesses. They provide people with pensions and proper jobs. I don't want to see these things run so far into the ground. That the whole country goes. Fuck them. Let's privatise them. Because then that's more. Neoliberal bullshit taking over. Just look at what they did in England. Price of fucking tickets for a train in England. They're ridiculous because they privatised the trains. But it's it's important to... You have to have a publicly run bus service and a train service. Because if you put it into the hands of the private market, they will only keep the routes that are profitable open. Which means that you have a whole swathe of people living in villages... Or who can't afford cars. Who can't fucking get anywhere. Because the buses are gone. And the trains are gone. You'll just have a lot of services going. Joining the major cities. And if you don't live in a major city. Fuck off. Happened in, in Detroit I believe. Detroit. Which is. Detroit is like a. A horribly famous example of what can absolutely go wrong to a place. Do you know. And. This is just off the top of my head over something I saw. But I believe Detroit completely broke Detroit went absolutely bankrupt and they couldn't afford to run public Detroit funded buses anymore so they handed the lot over to private interests private interests only kept the profitable lines open and I remember seeing an interview with with some fucking poor man who used to have to walk six hours to work every day because the bus routes that were in his particularly poor part of town were gone simply gone because private corporations don't give a fuck about that why, why would a private corporation possibly run an unprofitable bus line but uh, yeah it's in the interest of us we, we need to be our taxes need to be going towards public buses and public train lines even if there's no one on them just to keep them open how the fuck did I get onto a bus rent lads 
How did I start off with Charlie Simpson making sourdough bread from his yeasty eyebrows and now end up talking about fighting for the cause of Aaron Road Aaron? So anyway, um, nice feedback for last week's podcast. Especially for the, 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 I did a guided meditation at the end of last week's podcast. I got a lot of messages from ye saying that ye loved it. Particularly what I was happy with was... I was getting messages from the type of people who just simply are not going to be doing guided meditations. And they admitted admitted this to, them, to me themselves in the messages. Just lads, you know, just lads. Lads who don't have, you know, spiritualism as part of their life. Lads who wouldn't go near a fucking yoga class. Lads who wouldn't be in... A group of other lads where the word meditation comes up. And these lads had a go at it. And immediately sent me fucking mails going. Fuck me. You're dead right. It felt like washing my brain. So. If you were. Affected by last week's meditation. And it worked for you. And it felt real relaxing. Go and do that every fucking single day. Do it every single day. Start off with the shitty little one that I did. Give it a crack. And then... Have a look at more. Um, I I don't want to recommend any fucking guided meditations for you. Because a lot of them can be a little bit dodgy. Some of them can be good. Some of them can be shit. What I would say is... Learn to be your own guided meditation. What I spoke about last week... That's just counting breaths, lads. That's just... Learning to be calm and to be focused. Counting your breaths. uh, Checking in with your body. You can do that yourself. You don't need anyone guiding you. But if it's something that you're like. Getting stuck into every day. And you're loving it. I would suggest. Get a look at a few. Meditation retreats. Do you know. Um, They can be very intense. I haven't even done one myself. But I know friends who have done them. and, And they've been hugely effective for them. If, if if that little 10 minute thing for you is something that resonated with you and you want more of it, look for meditation retreats. I think one is called Vispana. I think. But you'll often find... Like there's some meditations. My buddy went to one in... It was in a boarding school in Limerick. You'll tend to find the intense meditation retreats. They could be a week long. And they'd happen in, it could be over Christmas, it could be over Easter. And they don't cost a lot of money, but you effectively fuck off to this place for a full week. No phone, you're not allowed to have your phone, none of that shit. A lot of them are silent for an entire week. You don't communicate with other people at all, even though you're present. It's intense, continual meditation. And it's... If it works for you, they can be very good. They're very... Meditation is the type of spiritualism that I'm into. I don't know what I am with uh, a god or any of that shit or religion. I, 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 I'm, it, it's not something I really think about. But I do know that when I meditate, I don't have any, other, any word for it other than spiritual. Um, and I don't mean that esoterically. 
when I say that meditation is spiritual for me, what I mean is that I experience it as spiritual. It could just be, you know, a heightened sen- state of concentration that causes my brain to organically release chemicals. And there's a good explanation for it. Could be that. Okay. But regardless of whether it is that, I do experience it as transcendental. At the height of my meditation, I think I've said this before, but I used to go down and meditate by the river Yorty's Couch in Limerick. And I'd just sit down there for 10 minutes every day and do my little meditation. But one time I, I was in it every day for about two months. And I, I had a real, I had a genuine intense spiritual experience where I woke up, not, I won't say woke up, but I, at the end of the meditation where you come out of it, and you open your eyes and you bring yourself back into the environment and your immediate surroundings. I did that and the first thing I saw was a nettle. And I felt the most gorgeous, beautiful, intense, loving feeling. And I truly, truly felt that myself and that nettle were the same, the same. I felt a deep, deep empathy for a nettle. As absurd as that is, I felt what how someone would describe heaven, I suppose. No sense of... It, it's like how some people come away from ayahuasca or DMT or something. I'd lost all sense of me, all neuroticism, all worries, all arrogance that was all out the window and for 10 20 beautiful seconds I felt that I was a a type of flowing energy and this nettle that I had fixated on that we were both smiling and hugging and there was a connectedness between me and the nettle I truly felt whatever the fuck's going on with me is going on with that nettle and we are one and there's a symbiotic relationship I'm not fucking I haven't I haven't gone mad. You know, like I said, that that could be as, as cynically simple as my brain releasing a few chemicals that gets me to feel that way. Okay? Um but I did ex- I experienced it as me and a nettle having a, an empathic moment and that's my experience of it. I'm not saying it's real, it's just how I lived it, how I experienced it. And then another time um I and now I'm not, you know, I get like I don't believe in heaven. I don't think I really believe in an afterlife, anything like that. But I mentioned on a previous podcast that my dad died like ten years ago. And one time I was meditating and again both of these things the nettle thing happened when I came out of the meditation, when I <clears throat> brought myself back into the present moment, we'll say, into my surroundings. So, where I was meditating this particular day, it was just by the riverbed. So, like, very still river, almost at my knees, sitting down, uh, my arse on my... I used to put my bicycle on its side, and I'd sit with my arse on the bicycle. And just the river flowing in front of me. Um, I don't know why I used to... I I think just the water was peaceful... I think what it was doing as well as the sound of water cancels out my tinnitus, which is a continual ringing sound that I have in my ear for the rest of my life. But I was meditating 
and across the river then it's just beautiful reeds and rushes and trees gorgeous nature and I came out of the meditation and as I opened my eyes just for one flicker across the way across the river I saw my dad now I'm not saying to you I saw a ghost or any shit like that I'm just saying my lived experience of the meditation at that point and whatever was going on at my brain I saw in the distance my dad and the pants that he used to wear across the river and I got a feeling an immediate emotion and feeling of him saying to me I'm okay now I'm not trying to say to you I, I contacted someone from beyond the grave I'm not trying to say it was real I'm just saying that's what I actually experienced that's what I actually experienced and it was beautiful it was fucking lovely um, it was if if meditation is, a, is an exploration a 10 minute deep exploration of what's going on inside you what I think it is it's it's a way to delve in it, it's like I, I think it's like when do you know when your computer is is all clogged and you run like a, a cleaning software on it like an antivirus or something that goes in and cleans up all the the duplicate files and frees up some space that's what I think meditation is it, it does that with our unconscious emotions that are bothering us the pain anxiety the anger that hums underneath our everyday being that we don't really have in our conscious awareness but yet it still motivates our behavior you can be motivated by a slight sense of irritation or anger or fear and not really be aware of it but yet it is informing all your decisions it's informing how you are around other people it's informing your body language if you're carrying around anger you're going to be gritting your teeth and clenching your fucking fists all day and you're not even aware of it I think meditation does that you can go into yourself and you can find these things and you're massaging your your it's connecting the heart and the head once again so when I woke up from that and I saw my dad across the way for a split second just saw him in the reeds and the rushes with his white pants and then gone and then this feeling of him saying to me I'm okay I think it was my wherever I'd gone within my unconscious mind 10 years on to use the system restore metaphor I'd managed to go in there and find find some type of grief, some grief that was in there that I wasn't aware of or that maybe was f- 10 years ago far, far too painful for me to process. It got released there. And just like with dreams, you know, dreams are, are unconscious you know farming the, the the you know the motivations of the unconscious into symbols and language and words so that our conscious mind can understand them i think in that moment that's what happened it like like a waking dream but because i'd gone in there with intention and i'd meditated and i had purpose and you have a degree of control over it to a, to an extent i think that's what my mind was ready to feel at that moment a letting go of what I complicated grief I'd call it 
when we when someone close to us dies, we don't always process it in a hundred percent healthy way. There can be irrational elements to it. We can feel anger towards the person for dying, which is irrational. But that's there's no there's often no rationality to how humans process things like grief. And I'm glad that happened. I'm glad that happened. I'm not coming away from it thinking I had a fucking supernatural experience. I just know I experienced that as cleansing and definitely what I needed. And it stuck with me as a very profound, beautiful, spiritual moment that I would not achieve outside of meditation. And it was fucking beautiful. It was class. And that's what meditation can do when you really get into it. Ten minutes a day, twice a day. Um, I think you're you're silly if you're not meditating. But again, heed what I said last week. Um, some people can store trauma in their bodies. And for those people, meditation uh, can be risky. But glad you enjoyed it. So I'm going to move on shortly to what this week's podcast is, is going to be about um, the kind of activating event for what this week's podcast is going to be about is the over the last few weeks a lot of people have been flagging with me uh, ju- just mentioning to me something so do you know the pr- Alan Partridge's current program that's on TV I don't know the name of it, but Alan Partridge has got a TV talk show, TV show on BBC at the moment, and it's it's class, it's fucking brilliant. But there is an episode of it and a segment that went very, very viral, which is Alan Partridge is sitting down and he he's playing an Irish version of himself. It's him interviewing an Irish version of himself. Fucking brilliant accent, it's hilarious. It's 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 a fellow who looks like him from Sligo. And he sings Kamauchi Black and Tans, which is a rebel song about the IRA. And it's it's brilliant. It's class. And that segment went hugely viral for good reason, because it's hilarious. But loads of people were flagging with me, because I hadn't seen the full thing. They said, that bears a lot of similarities to a documentary that the Rubber Bandits made in 2016 called Our Guide to Reality. So basically what happens, just, just to to kind of show you the similarities of the two episodes and what people were telling me about, which I I agree with them, but if, if, if I'm wrong, it's the maddest coincidence on the planet. So anyway, in our guide to reality, which I think you'll see on the RTE guide, or the RTE player, if you're in Ireland, and if you're not in Ireland, I'm sure there's other ways to find it. But the Rubber Bandit's Guide to Reality, it's a half hour long documentary about philosophy and the nature of reality, whatever. So there's a segment in it where we interview a reality TV star called Stevie Johnson. And the whole purpose of our interview is to confuse him and destabilise his reality. Anyway, long story short. Stevie Johnson has been interviewed by us, he's an Englishman. During the interview, he he wins a prize, and the prize is a live terrapin, which is a type of turtle. So we hand him a live turtle, and then by the end of the interview, we radicalise him, he joins the IRA, 
and then we sing a rebel tune about him, which is quite, which is inspired hugely by the wolf tones, come out you black and tans, it's a rebel tune. So we give him essentially a live turtle and then perform a rebel tune. In the Alan Partridge episode from a couple of weeks ago, Alan Partridge's Irish guest is on. He gives Alan Partridge the gift of a live turtle in a box and then sings a rebel song. So those are two things. You've got a live turtle and a rebel song. Two incredibly bizarre, vastly different things that occur in two interview segments and they're strikingly similar. Um, so loads of people were saying, he's nicked you, he's nicked you. Now firstly, if fucking Steve Cogan was in any way influenced by that, I am filled with pride because I grew up looking at Steve Coogan. I grew up looking at the day to day with Chris Morris where I first saw Steve Coogan and he was a writer on that. I grew up looking at Alan Partridge. Steve Coogan's comedy massively, massively informs and has influenced loads of rubber banded stuff, especially like the the earlier sketches that I was writing for Republic of Telly. So to have someone who was such an influence on me potentially being directly influenced by something that I wrote and then to put that into his own work, sure, that's perfection. That's what more could I possibly want as an artist? That's it. And if it's a coincidence, it's just mad. But um, if it is true and, and Steve Coogan can hear this, I, w- I wouldn't mind you, Steve, if you are actually being influenced by the rubber bandits please use your gigantic platform to tell some Brits to, to like our stuff T- tell some Brits to go and buy my book tell some Brits to listen to my podcast tell them to look at my BBC series that's going to be out in a few months that would be very very handy Um, yeah I'm not complaining about if Steve Coogan took influence more than welcome absolutely do please because that's a huge part I mention all the time about music being a conversation, about, you know, there's no such thing really as originality. You take on influence, influences from other artists and you respond to it. Comedy and writing is the exact same. Like, even this, the segment in our show, in The Guide to Reality, where we interview somebody and give them a live turtle and perform a rebel tune, I was hugely influenced by the Eric Andre show, which is an adult swim it's it's the last go and watch the fucking Eric Andre show. It's it's on four O D, the four channel four player is after getting all three seasons of the Eric Andre show. Go and fucking watch him. For me, it's it's a comedy genius. It's the best comedy television, I think, of the twenty tens. My opinion, my opinion. It really excites me massively and makes me want to create. So that segment is hugely influenced by Eric Andre. But I also have a track record going back at least 2013 of non-stop roaring and shouting about how good Eric Andre is on Twitter. So if you are going to borrow from someone or take influence from someone, you then also have a responsibility to acknowledge it and publicly say it and then try and use your platform to help that other artist. And then you can ethically borrow all you want. So if old Stevie Coogan is actually influenced, be a sound cunt, Steve, will you? Tell the Brits about our stuff. God bless. So 
that's kind of what this episode is going to be about. What I want to talk about is... We made a documentary called The Rubber Bandit's Guide to 1916. And it's about... It's a history documentary about the 1916 Rising. It's one of... We're both incredibly proud of it. We both love it. It was nominated for an IFTA. Um, you know, RTE spent fucking millions on their RTE... On their 1916 programming. Most stuff was absolutely pla- panned. And loads of money was thrown at it. Our 1916 documentary was given barely any money. And it was one of the few things that would have gotten critical acclaim so I'm incredibly proud of it I want to talk about a very obscure and strange documentary that influenced our guide to 1916 before we do that I think it's time for the ocarina pause so yeah I'm going to play the the large depressing ocarina the one that isn't very melodic Um, the banjo again is at the other side of the room can't be arsed going over to get it but we play the large ocarina and this is so that there might be a digital advert, advert inserted. I don't know. The ocarina is like a little warning for you, so it doesn't scare the shit out of you if all of a sudden there's a fucking advert for an Audi or some shit. So here's the ocarina. Let's let's try and get an actual. Let's see if we can get something nice out of it this week, because this big ocarina is breaking my heart. That was the ocarina pause. Um, this podcast is supported by you, the listener, via the Patreon page. If you'd like to be a patron of this podcast, I the the Patreon page it allows me to earn a living as an artist. It allows me to know how much money I'm getting every month to plan my life to create. It's life changing. So if you're getting something from this podcast and you're enjoying it and you're liking it. And you'd say to yourself, Jesus, uh, this blind boy cunt, you know, he's giving me an hour a week that I enjoy. I'd love to buy him a pint or a cup of coffee. You can do it. Patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. Go and become a patron or a patron. 
once a month, price of a coffee, price of a pint, whatever. Um, it's a model that operates on soundness. I don't really provide any perks for people who are patrons. I want everyone to get the same podcast, regardless of whether you're a patron or not. Some people can't afford it. That's fine. You get the same podcast as everyone else. But if you can't afford it, please do. Please consider it. It's it's a model that's working really well so far. Also, uh, li- on iTunes, like the podcast. Subscribe to the podcast. Leave a review of the podcast. We're now on Spotify, lads. Okay? If you're listening to this podcast on Spotify, which earns fuck all money, but if, if you're listening to this on Spotify, make sure and follow the podcast. Okay? Because that can help me as well. So, there you go. There's, there's some ways that you can support this podcast. And tell a friend. You know, I've got two sold-out gigs now in Canada because... My wonderful Canadian listeners have gone and told their friends in work or in or in their neighbours about this podcast to listen to. And now I have enough Canadians listening where I can go over and sell out a gig. So this is a communal experience. It's a community type of thing. If you're liking it, you know, there's no huge budget behind this. It's not sponsored by a giant company. It's just me in my bedroom with a sock. That's all it is. So... You can really use your agency to do small little things that will help this and help the this fucking podcast community. So please do. Um. So yeah, what I talk, what I, what I want to talk about is just inf- how how previous existing pieces of work can go on to inform and influence uh, another piece of work, in particular something that we made our Rubber Bandits Guide to nineteen sixteen. Um, we were given the commission. We were surprised to fucking be to even be given it. About we probably would have found out about it mid twenty fourteen or early twenty fifteen. And up until that point, I'd written a half hour pilot for Channel Four. Um, actually, we had the fucking yeah, the Impossible Game Show, which was on ITV over in the UK. I I, I can't tell if that was before or after. Might even been happening at the same time, but. Rubber Bandit's Guide to 1916, it was an hour-long documentary to be written and performed in and edited. A big, big, big task. So, for me, it was a first. It was a first. It was like, right, okay, how the fuck am I going to... How am I going to write an entire fucking documentary? So, in the earliest stages of research for the 1916 documentary, one of the earliest things I do really you know, before I even start talking ideas, is, I suppose, it's what you'd call the mood board stage. When you're making TV, when you're making an album, if you like, any any large creative project, what you want to start off with is what's known as a, a mood board. And a mood board is, it's where the, the earliest stages of the creative process, you, you immerse yourself in the creative work of other people. So I went looking at documentaries that I enjoy as a way to establish a mood board so you know anything by Adam Curtis is going to be in my mood board I fucking love Adam Curtis's work the way that he uses voiceover visual and music to create meaning that's there but while I was googling and trying to you know find first off what was already 
what else was out there in terms of documentaries about ninth, the nineteen sixteen rising, or documentaries about early Irish republicanism? What was out there? So I went looking all over the internet on YouTube, and then I stumbled across this documentary from nineteen seventy three, which was called "Hang Up Your Brightest Colors: The Life of Michael Collins." And I didn't know, I didn't know what it was. I just saw it on YouTube and I decided to press play. You know, I'm going, right, okay, it's in the 70s. It'll be all right, I'll get a squint at it. Uh, So I flick it on and immediately I'm presented with, even by the first ever scene I knew, this is weird. Something about this is almost comedy. So I'll play for you the, the 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 very first scene. Visually what this is it's it's a long shot which means that it's a shot taken kind of from the distance it's not up close of a man emerging from an old kind of stone type famine hut and delivering some lines introductory lines walking in a very awkward fashion. The only when I first saw this, the only way I can describe it is this is this is this is mad. Something about this is really strange, and I don't know if I'm supposed to be laughing or not. An Irish friend said to me, "Please remember one thing: there's no Irish problem, only an English problem." Well, this film is about that English problem. And not so long ago, a distinguished Englishman described the gunmen of Ireland as baboons. Well, this film also explains, explains, what made one Irishman named Michael Collins a baboon. So, I saw that opening, that opening scene, and... It f- it felt like a joke. I was like, "What the fuck? What's this guy's game? Who is he?" His there was something about his his diction, uh, how he delivered his lines. There was an extra level of um, what I can only describe as an, an eccentric passion. Just at the end there, like where he he says, uh, "This is describes how one man named Michael Collins was a baboon." He ends with a question mark. So I'm like, "Right, something." This lad, this lad is a, he's a special character, you know, this, this, I'm looking forward to what's going on. So I kept going with it, and immediately, what I was struck by was, the use of, I found myself consistently laughing, even though I knew that this isn't comedy, but yet I'm laughing. And I don't know, is it because the person making it knew that they were creating comedy or not, or if they were just simply eccentric, one of the reasons that there's a lot of comedy in it is they use quite a lot of long shots. Now, from a, from a cinematography point of view, funny things tend to happen on long shots, by which I mean, when you're looking at the screen, if the action is happening in the distance, it tends to be kind of funny, right? Um, what would be a good example of this? Here's a recent here's a recent uh, internet viral example that I'm assuming everyone will know. Do you remember that video from about 
four years ago and it's it's not a comedy video someone recorded it on their phone so basically what it is is it's a camera phone camera in a in a park in england and from the left side of the screen to the other from going from the left to the right you see a herd of deer running in the distance and then you hear a man shouting fenton fenton and then a dog following the deer and what it is is it's 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 an accident and clip that somebody took of some man who was out walking his dog and his dog whose name is fenton which is a gas name for a dog chases a herd of deer and creates chaos everyone knows that clip it went hugely viral the reason it's so perfect and the reason i believe it went so viral it's not just because there's a dog called fenton chasing deer it's because it's on a locked off long shot and the the action happens in the distance within the screen this is the cinematographic language of comedy the marx brothers used to do that you'll see it in a stanley kubrick film called barry linden which is has elements of dark comedy in Stan, in barry linden there's a scene where two there's a duel a duel where two men pull out pistols to shoot each other that's not particularly funny one one man getting shot by another is not funny but because kubrick chose to show the shooting on a long lens we interpret it as comedy there's something actually funny about it so this documentary hang up your brightest colors uses a lot of long shots so as a result of this you're naturally fed this comedic humorous language but what i soon quickly notice is like at all times i'm very conscious i'm like well, this man sounds to me like uh like he's english you know he's definitely he's not fucking irish at all sounds very well spoken english and i approach the documentary with the sense of this is going to be biased the brits have made this so it's going to be really biased and it's going to make michael collins look like a terrorist and it's going to make the ra look really bad and all of this stuff and it won't call out british tyranny or anything like this i was so far from the fucking truth this documentary is almost completely radicalized it is the most vicious takedown of british colonial violence that i've ever seen in any fucking documentary it it it, it might as well have been made by the fucking ra and it's this really posh british voice speaking over it here's one example this is something that really made me jump back from my chair and go holy fuck where the narrator describes the horrendous shooting of, of thomas clark who was one of the leaders of 1916 who would have been one of the older leaders and the humiliation uh that he was submitted to when he was being executed by the british after the 1916 rising but just listen to how the narrator how they get so emotively described this it's they sound like they're in the ra became a hard man he witnessed appalling cruelty one english officer though unhappily an irishman by birth a captain lee wilson selected victim after victim and finally settled on old tom clark captain wilson had the old patriot stripped in front of watching women and tortured him till he bled 
It is recorded that neither Tom Clark nor any of the other victims uttered a word. But Michael Collins watched, and the day came when he found Captain Lee Wilson on a quiet country road in County Wexford, and Michael Collins had him shot dead. So it's about at that moment in the documentary where I fucking pause the laptop uh, because it's about 15 minutes in and I say to myself, what the fuck am I watching? What the hell is this? This is not what I expected. This this is more kind of hardcore than anything I've ever seen, any documentary. This isn't impartial. This is a, a British person passionately calling out British cruelty, British imperialism, British occupation. Passionately. He sounds radicalised. So I have to go finding out, what the fuck is this? What is this film? Hang up your brightest colours. And I find out it's made by a dude called Kenneth Griffith. And he's the person there who is narrating. And Kenneth Griffith was an actor from Wales. A Welsh actor. And he was working with the BBC, I believe. And David Attenborough, that David Attenborough, happened to be like the head commissioner in the BBC. And he said to uh, Kenneth Griffith, start making some documentaries. Now, Griffith was like, I don't make documentaries, I'm an actor. But uh, Attenborough believed in him and said, work away. So he would have been in Wales and would have had a kind of what would be known as a regional budget. So, with the way the BBC works is that they, they'll divide money regionally. So, you know, Welsh branch of the BBC will make a certain amount of television. And they kind of harmlessly said to Kenneth Griffith, just you go, go make a few documentaries. And Kenneth Griffith's like, about what? And the BBC made the mistake of saying, ah, go on, whatever you want, whatever the fuck. So, Kenneth Griffith goes off and makes... A very radicalised, angry documentary about the life of Michael Collins and the history of, of the Irish War of Independence in 1916. Um, kind of underneath the BBC's nose, but without anyone, without anyone in the BBC really getting involved in the process because they believe it to be so harmless. They're like, it's just some cunt down in Wales. He's just making regional TV, we're just throwing money at him, who cares? But meanwhile, he's making this incredibly anti-imperialist, radicalised documentary that is absolutely contrary in every way to the colonial uh, lens of history that British people are taught in school, or certainly that the BBC would represent. Now, Griffith himself is a Welshman who doesn't appear to have any connection whatsoever with Ireland. He doesn't have any Irish blood, he doesn't have any Irish relatives. The, The closest thing I could find out when I was trying to discover like you know what the fuck who is this dude and why does he care so deeply for Irish independence for Irish rebels for Irish fighters the only thing I could find out is that when he, when he was a child in Wales he said I overheard a strange whispered conversation in our darkened kitchen Flynn a neighbour had been a member of the Royal Irish Constabulary and was forced to leave Ireland when the roof of his house was burnt over him. I longed to understand why. So when Kenneth Griffith was a little kid in Wales, he heard about an Irish neighbour who would have been in the RIC, which 
they would have been considered traitors by the IRA in the early 1920s or whatever. And Griffith was just like, why was he burned out of his home? And from there, obviously, went to learn about the colonisation and oppression of Ireland by the British. And he is somebody who appeared to be a great ally, like a real proper ally of Ireland. He's someone who was a very proud Welshman and throughout the documentary speaks about kind of the the shame he feels as a Welsh person and the connectivity he feels with Ireland because he believes the Welsh to be a Celtic people and the Irish to be a Celtic people. Anytime a Welsh person is seen, like someone like Lloyd George, who was a Welsh person, to be brutal against the Irish, he calls out their Welshness. So he has no Irishness in him. He's never been to Ireland. He just, for some reason, is this massive ally of the country who sees this huge injustice and just says no and is a bit of a rebel but in the meantime he's making this fucking documentary and the BBC don't know about it this is 1973 lads that's one year after bloody Sunday 1973 the provisional IRA have formed a bombing campaign has begun on mainland Britain there was a massive crisis the the provisional IRA were about to become at their fucking height so whatever British propaganda machine was going to be out there they certainly were not to be seen to be broadcasting or making with British taxpayer money this incredibly honest and historically accurate but not only that radicalised and biased documentary that dissected and burned British imperialism British power British capitalism and it got me scratching my head going how the fuck what the fuck is this thing how did it get made how was it reacted to I'll play you another clip which for me like this wouldn't even this 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 next clip wouldn't have even been made on Irish television Kenneth Griffith goes into describing the black and tans who were... I'll just let him, I'll let him say it for you. David Lloyd George, Welsh Prime Minister in England, organised the terror against Ireland. First he sent in the usual spies and informers, and then he sent in an independent volunteer army known as the Auxiliaries. Uh, the Auxiliaries, incidentally, were one of Winston Churchill's jolly ideas. They were comparable to Nazi SS troops. They were well-paid ex-British officers, and their motto was to shoot first and ask questions afterwards. They fought hard and efficiently. They also murdered and tortured freely, and the Welshman Lloyd George and the Englishman Winston Churchill turned a couple of blind eyes. Next, Lloyd George and his government sent into Ireland an army called the Black and Tans. Now, it is usually believed that many of these black and tans were convicted criminals before leaving England. What is certain is that most of them were worthy of criminal conviction before they left Ireland. The Irish, admiring English efficiency, tended to prefer the barbarism of the auxiliaries to the obscenities of the black and tans. So that, like, fuck me. To even hear something like that uh, from an English accent... 
or, or not sorry not in English to me he sounds English I know he's Welsh no disrespect to Kenneth Griffith but to, to my ears you know it, that's a British accent so to hear that he he's calling this is fucking Britain this is the BBC he is comparing British officers to the SS he is calling them he's saying what they did was terror he's calling them terrorists he is saying that British officers this is happening just after World War One. he's saying that they should have gone to jail that they were criminals for their actions 1973 BBC funded what the actual fuck is going on here So these were th- these were the thoughts that I would have had in my head when I first saw this. My my heart would have been pounding. I was so excited to see something which I think it had fuck all views at the time as well. It was just this thing uploaded on YouTube. There's two or three copies of it uploaded now, and I hope by me like I, I obviously encourage you to go and watch the full documentary. Uh, Hang up your brother's colors, the life of Michael Collins. I hope me mentioning on the podcast doesn't get it deleted off YouTube. But I was shocked. I was shocked and inspired. I thought it was fantastic. Um, to be honest, even how how biased he was was too far for me. He was too radicalised. But the use of humour, the use of accents, all these things I found to be massively inspirational and went into my mood board for what I wanted to do then with our guide to 1916. I was so excited to have found this thing. But still I started scratching my head. Going, how was this made? And of course, then I start researching more and more and finding out, yes, it was made in 1973. Yes, it was kind of made under the nose of the BBC. But like I said, because he was just some cunt from Wales who'd gotten a couple of quid from him, they didn't look, they didn't uh, oversee it. So he arrives back to them with this, this fucking film. Meanwhile, the IRA, the provisional IRA, have a mainline or a mainland bombing campaign going on in London. You've got a year after Bloody Sunday. Tensions are ridiculously high. Tensions in the early 70s are so fucking high that the threat of the intervention of the Irish Republican Army, not the IRA, but the the official army of the Irish Republic, our actual army, tensions were so high where people didn't know would Ireland have to declare war on Britain? Which could have... It would have sparked something pretty fucking... Some NATO shit that would have been... Of world importance. But in the early 70s people didn't know. Because the brutality that was happening up north was so extreme... That it was being discussed in the Dáil. That should the Irish intervene. Should the Irish army intervene. And declare war on Britain. So... It would have been utterly unthinkable and shocking. A documentary like that... It wouldn't get made today by the BBC. I know because I'm making BBC documentaries right now and they're rigorous and there's many legal procedures that need to be passed through if something is approved of in a script. They're bulletproof. So what happens is that Kenneth Griffith arrives to the BBC with his fully made documentary that they funded and they go fucking apeshit. They go, are you fucking mad? What are you after making? Are you in the ra? And they ban it. They ban it completely. They say, not a fucking hope. We're not showing it. And it doesn't get broadcast until 1993. But in the meantime, K 
Kenneth Griffith is fucking furious. He is furious. He is like, no, this is an anti-imperialist film. I'm telling the story as it is. The British government and the British army committed acts of brutal fucking terrorism in Ireland. And this story needs to be told. BBC are like, no, it fucking doesn't. So he takes them to court. He takes... Um, I think it, w- it wasn't the, the BBC, but there was an organisation called... Was it the IBC? It's an organisation that doesn't exist anymore, but it was the... It'd be like the B, the, the Independent Broadcasting Authority, which would be like the BAA in Ireland. So this was a governing organisation that decided what was appropriate or what wasn't appropriate for British television. So because this was funded by taxpayer money and the BBC commissioned it, and the IBA come in and say, no, it's not going on TV. Griffith takes him to court for political censorship. And a long battle ensues. And he fucking wins. He wins. He successfully sues the IBA for political censorship. Because that, it, that is what it is. The mistake that was made is that the BBC didn't really oversee it. They should have asked him at least, what the fuck do you want to do it about? Can we see some of it? What's the script look like? But they didn't. They weren't expecting it. So they allowed this very biased and radicalised film to be made using their money. So they fucked up. And he, and he successfully won political censorship. And he ended up getting... They still didn't put out the documentary. Like I said, that didn't get shown until 1993. But he got a lot of money. He got a couple of million quid out of it, I believe. So what the mad bastard then does is he buys himself a house in Islington in a part of London that is incredibly posh. Those really fucking... The house is probably worth 10 million now. But he buys a house in this really posh area where he's surrounded by people who are loosely connected to royalty the establishment, politicians, ex-army generals. And he buys this house in the middle of them and legally has the house house's name changed to Michael Collins' house just to piss him off. This is a unbelievable ally of Ireland from Wales who has no connection whatsoever, just simply identified an injustice and really cared about it. He then went on to make... He, he received he received death threats from the fucking UVF and had him framed and used to frame them and hang him in Michael Collins' house and invite guests in to brag and boast about his death threats from the UVF. He made several fucking films, documentaries, about Irish Republicanism. He made one about Roger Casement. He made a documentary in 1980, I believe. What the fuck was it called? I can't remember the name of it, but he made a documentary about 1916 and he interviewed anyone who participated in 1916 who was still alive. Um, he made documentaries about the Boer War. Really impassionate, angry documentaries that criti- criticised British imperialism and British military force and British war crimes. And that's what Kenneth Griffith did. And I just thought it was fantastic. I just thought it was 
amazing to see it, w it was so entertaining so bizarre so eccentric and i still can't get my head around the film when i watch it and it's something i throw on regularly and a huge inspiration so that's what i wanted to talk about i don't think there's any other details i just wanted to mention that and play those few clips and say to you go on to youtube and get a look at hang up your brightest colors the life of michael collins by kenneth griffith and fair play to kenneth griffith Fair play to him for being a fucking mad bastard and a creative force and a fearless person. He was buried in a tricolour. That was his choice. And also, strangely enough, buried in a tricolour and the flag of Israel. And I can't get my head around that. Um, You used to get a lot of old school heads who supported Israel at the start especially when it was mandatory Palestine and it was controlled by the British and the Israelis set up like the air gun and fought the Brits. You know, the Israelis had had a fair bit of support from Sinn Féin at that time. I think fucking De Valera was buddies with... Uh, what was his name? Shaim Herowitz. I think that, that could probably be wrong, but... There's, there's a president of Israel from the 1960s with a full-on Irish accent and he was born in Ireland and his dad was called the Sinn Féin rabbi and he was uh, a Jewish man living in Dublin who used to hang around with Michael Collins and hang around with uh, De Valera and kind of learned as well. This this rabbi and his son went on, the son went on the farm like the Irgun, I believe, and the Irgun were like an Israeli version of the IRA that fought the British out of what was known as mandatory Palestine and then went out to farm Israel. So in the early days of Israel, with kibbutzes as well, which were kind of founded on almost communist principles, you found a lot of anti-imperialists and kind of left-wingers supporting Israel in the early days before Israel themselves went on to become quite aggressively imperialist, you know? So maybe that's why he had the Israeli flag in his coffin. Because he wasn't Jewish. I can't get my head around that. Um, I haven't seen... I've seen the documentary I made about 1916. I haven't seen the one on Casement. I'd love to see his documentary on Roger Casement. I'm going to get a look for that. So, fair play, Kenneth Griffith. I'm going to leave you go. Um, how far are we into this? Just over an hour. Yeah, I'm going to leave you go. I'm getting... I'm up in the morning, I'm getting my bloods done in the doctor. Um, mainly just because I, I have a fucking birthday coming up. I just I just like to be aware of what's going on at my health. Um, I challenge myself in not being one of these lads who's scared of a doctor. Which is, it's a powerfully irrational way to be. So I'm going to go to the doctor, get my bloods tested, and they're going to test for all sorts. Fucking diabetes... Uh, my liver health kidneys probably um, cholesterol all this stuff just so I can check in with how I am and depending on that blood test then I'll see if I need to go for that full full male health check thing which I don't know what's involved in it but it's like an NCT it's like an NCT for lads and there's one for women as well which I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna see how I get on in the bloods and then the doctor's gonna advise me. But if you're the type of lad who's scared of going to doctors and scared of finding out 
and you know you might have no complaints but just simply going to a doctor getting your bloods done and going how am I doing I'd encourage you to do that because people get sick out of nowhere and early detection of anything is the safest and smartest thing you can do and as well a huge part of my mental health regime you know part of my, my cognitive processes as regarding my mental health if I'm feeling down or anxious and I'm trying to deal with it and cope one thing I do say to myself is that I I always remind myself of the I, I'm very very privileged to have good health I have good health I don't as far as I know I have no complaints I am able-bodied I don't have a chronic illness a little bit of asthma it's grand but I have good health and I've got my hearing I've got my eyes all of this and I consider every single bit of that to be a privilege that I have right now in my life and I use this as motivation to live the best life that I can right now that's what I do so if I get a hint of depression a hint of anxiety and like that I use this as part of my coping stuff I go whatever is up with me right now I can cope and isn't it so good that I can go for a run that I can go to the gym that I don't have a, a, a physical complaint that's keeping me from these things isn't that such a huge privilege and I owe it to myself to live my life the best I can right now so checking up on my health is part of that which I would so I'm just recommending to you do that check your balls in the shower check your balls for ball cancer take cancer whatever do you know what I mean alright best of luck God bless. Have a have a good week. Uh, enjoy yourself. Be compassionate to yourself. Be compassionate to other people. Yort.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.